people have an assumption about what would happen if they didn't uh, impose guilt and shame upon themselves. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema, and this is Systema for Life. Howie, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, just had a just recovering from a, a long weekend there, and I guess we, we haven't had actually had a podcast for a, for a few weeks. This is the longest stint that we haven't had one together. I think. Yeah, I don't I don't know if uh, listeners can tell. Yeah, I've, I've been literally barraged with one email that says, <laughs> "When are you and Howie doing another one?" So that, there was at least one person that's uh, back on this. Yeah, I think that was me, but uh, <laughs> whatever. Might have been my mum. I'm not sure, but there we go. But yeah, it's nice to see you. And uh, we just had a recovered from our whole weekend with a uh, Martin Wheeler. So. Um, slip strike grapple seminar which turned into being a massive uh, exploration of consciousness and uh, the ways in which we delude ourselves with the daily life and the world around us which was a lot more than we bargained for but that's usually what happens when you bring Martin in or, or Manny or any of the big cheeses they, you ask for one thing and you get that plus about 40,000 other things and it's uh, quite a mind blower but yeah this, is, this led on to today's um, theme a little bit that I'd like to talk about which is um, agency and, uh, and control and what we can do about that Okay, so when you talk about agency, you mean like what what we can actually control in the outside world or what we can control in ourselves or our, our reactions? A little bit of both. Um, I mean, some people would argue that the only thing that we can control is our reactions to the outside world, right? That we have very little control over our environment. Um, I mean, as a species, we have more control over our environment than, than any other, probably, on the planet. Um, but still, it doesn't take much um for example the threat of hurricane florence coming through a couple of weeks ago here in north carolina before you realize that you really are just at, at the behest of mother nature and it doesn't take long for somebody just to reach down with a tornado and blot you out of existence if they really want to and you can do all the prep that you want to you can try and arm yourself against your environment but unless you're like kim jong-un and you have a nuclear bunker with unlimited food underneath it you, you're still at threat you're still at risk just like everybody else so there's, there's only a certain amount of prepping that we can do um so I guess this is this is more about the choices that we make in everyday life. So there's some crossover here with kind of like cognitive psychology and kind of behavioral psychology and stuff like that. Um, a lot of which you've um, touched on, I think, um, just in, in your everyday work with helping to influence people make better choices for their lifestyles in terms of diet and exercise. So this is something you presumably deal with every day. Right. And there's this, uh, you know, human beings are notoriously bad at understanding probability and odds. Yeah. So, right, we tell we, t we, we tell stories about what will happen if they eat well or eat poorly or sleep mm. or don't sleep. Mm. But they're stories, right? They're not uh, ironclad predictions. Yeah. Um, but we're aiming towards the the agency that people have. So people are very worried about all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, they're typically worried about all sorts of things about which they can do little or nothing. Mm. Whereas where they do have agency is where we work, where, you know, yeah. the kind of breaths people take or yeah. the, the thing they stick on the end of their forks and put into their mouths. Sure. And, and those statistically speaking are going to have a much greater impact on their lives yeah. than the things that they're worried about. Yeah. So, so why do you think we get it so wrong? Why is it that we, is it just that we try and focus on the little things we think we have control over because we don't want to face the big issues or is there something else at work here? Well, I think there's a, there's a lot of um, re research by behavioral economists and behavioral scientists in general mm. around the type of heuristics that we evolved mm. 
to that evolved to be successful along with us and they didn't involve like actuarial mm. calculations it was just like what was that what was in front of us sure and whatever you know was salient and whatever we noticed was a pretty good guide to like oh somebody just fell off the cliff yeah that was pretty dramatic as opposed to oh somebody you know a thousand people ate these berries and they lived an average of a year and a half longer yeah <laughs> right like, yeah yeah, so there's definitely so there's a lot of inputs into the system, I think, right? Um, and there's in behavioral psychology, lots of people looked at it in different ways. There's um, there was one famous study, um, I think it was by uh, Robert Sapolsky about the aggression study and all that kind of stuff, and how um, how easy it is to get people to act like Nazi prison guards, pretty much, um, just with a little bit of kind of authority. Was that Sapolsky? Oh, that was I think it was Philip Zimbardo. Oh, Zimbardo, my bad. Okay, sorry, maybe Sapolsky did some like commentary on it afterwards or something like that um but yeah so, so that whole idea that it's it's not that hard to influence people and on that one they're using the heuristic of authority right as, as long as a doctor tells you to do something or somebody with a uniform and somebody else is doing it as well then you kind of you end up going along with it and there was that other famous example of um i think i saw one on youtube or social media something like that um where you had a waiting room in which everybody was in in everybody in the room apart from one person who walked in was an actor um, and while they're in the doctor's waiting room they're just sitting there for a long time and a beep would go off like every two and a half minutes and every time the beep went off all the actors stood up from their chairs and then sat down again and the first couple of times the the, the real person was just perplexed like why all these people standing up what what's the point in this um no explanation was offered she didn't ask anybody anything like that but after about two beeps she started standing up and then gradually they started removing actors and then one by one they got replaced with real people who were coming in to wait in the doctors and by the end of it there was no actors there at all but everybody was standing up every two minutes on cue like a pavlov dog to this beep which is a beautiful experiment i thought just to show like how we just don't question things we just go with the herd or we go with authority right and then uh, i think solomon ash ran some experiments i believe it was in the 50s or 60s where there again it was um, one experimental subject and the and the other five people were were Confederates sure. and the, it was a um, a perception test mm. and it was like you know which of these two lines is longer yeah and clearly line A was much longer than line B yeah but everybody else they went they all gave their answers sequentially and the mm. uh, the actual subject went last yeah and like eighty five percent of the subjects. Everyone else had said line, you know, line. Give the incorrect answer. About eighty-five percent of the test subjects then gave the incorrect answer. Well, they didn't believe what they were seeing. They believed like what the consensus was over what they were probably seeing. So, yeah, or or it's it's unclear what they believed. Sure, mm. <laughs> like, mm. what what the motivation was. Yeah, um, but just you know, to to balance out Zimbardo's study, there was a really lovely study done. I think in nineteen seventy or seventy-one. Mm. Um, in the old days, remember phone booths. Mm -hmm. When they they had the coin return slot, yeah, sure. So still got them in England, the big red ones. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, some of them have gone silver now, but in the old towns, you have the big old red phone boats. <laughs> so anyone who ever made a call would would check the coin return slot mm -hmm. at the end to see if the dime came back because yeah. some, sometimes it did. Mm -hmm. And so the experiment was people put a dime. The experimenters put a dime in the coin return slot and then waited for people to make a phone call and then walked past and dropped a pile of folders. Mm. And they found that people who found the dime were significantly more likely to help. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so when you think about how easy it is to influence people, yeah, it's really easy. And and therefore, the other um, line of thinking around that is how easily we are influenced. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Um. I mean. I mean, it raises a whole bunch of questions that you can get very deep into. I mean, some people literally believe that we have no volition, no free will at all, and we're just an absolute product 
of our environment, of our kind of uh, cultural upbringing, of adolescent experiences. And we're just basically like a programmed computer that just sucks things up from birth. And then even the decisions we think we're making were actually made before any kind of conscious relational choice, right? And so we have no free will. That's one end of the argument. And those people are really fun to be around. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> you could do anything to them. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. just slap them. Yeah, like, exactly. Sorry, could, man. Couldn't no. help it. I had no free will. I had to punch you in the face. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then people on the other end of the scale who feel like, um, you know, that we have um, from from whatever source we, we 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 claim to have that we have a soul or we have kind of like a bestowed upon by our creator or something like that we we have the choice right we have the power of free will and that could be influenced by factors both natural or supernatural depending on your belief system and all that kind of stuff and but at the end of the day we do have the choice and if we make bad choices that either manifests as like sin or bad things we make good choices maybe it will come back to us in another way so you have every idea from kind of sin to karma and all those kinds of things um and then other people who are just like yeah stuff happens in the world and we just react to it and it goes round and round and round so you can kind of in philosophical terms you can kind of talk yourself into circles as to how much free will that we have but if you assume that we have any free will at all um you still have to you still have to acknowledge the fact that all of these examples, the, the Zimbardo example, the, the coin slot example, and the, the how long is this line example, shows us how many kind of blind spots we have and how much we're influenced all of the time, right? So for what, however much choice we have, it's probably less than we think it is. I guess that's what I'm getting at, right? And this, this choice of phrase that you used at the beginning, which was, we tell ourselves stories. This is a really interesting thing. Martin Wheeler over the weekend had us doing exercise for a couple of hours during the, um, the first day of the seminar in which we basically, um, pushed each other forwards into a into a free fall kind of thing and then we'd have to kind of catch yourself on your hands uh, and we were asked to do it with our eyes closed first just get pushed over and then hit the floor and you know hopefully not smack your nose on the floor your hands fly out in front of you naturally your body actually knows how to land right it will do that uh, and then we had to open our eyes very very briefly in the middle of the fall to take kind of a mental snapshot of the environment around us and when we did that what was revealed was if somebody then asked you what it was that you saw when your eyes were still closed um you would start to make things up if you didn't know what exactly what you were looking at. For example, I got pushed towards a pair of wheelchairs that were held in reserve at the end of the uh, fences club. I took a snapshot and um, my training partner said, how many wheelchairs? And I said, confidently, one. There's one wheelchair at the end of the row. Open my eyes and there's two wheelchairs side by side. So um, my training partner, Brian Marco, did the same thing. He had a row of fencing masks above some jackets and they were there side by side. There was clearly about seven or eight of them or somewhere between like seven and nine. Um, I pushed him towards those. He took a mental snapshot as he went down. I said, how many fencing masks? And he said, one. There were a row of fencing jackets and there was one mask. So his brain kind of looked at the set of things called fencing masks and said, yep, there was one, there, there was a set and probably one, right? And it forced to make a snap decision. That's what it did. And the interesting thing was the more we did this exercise and the more we tried to see the world for the way that it was, the more accurate it became. We did start to see things we didn't see before and we started to notice things a little bit more. But at the end of the day, all of us, um, as Martin pointed out, we're making up our own environment. He, he's, the phrase that Martin used was, what does the inside of your own mind look like? It looks like this. Like, look around you, right? This, this is all your own creation. None of this is actually here. You're turning this into input data and then interpreting that in your brain. And you're not doing it clearly. You're not doing it with 100% fidelity. It's being filtered through your associative memory, which is built up from experience. Um, and it's being filtered through the emotional state that you're in now. If you're afraid, you'll see different things. If you're aggressive, you'll see different things, like literally, than you will if you're not in those states. So the goal of one of the goals of Systema is to help us see the world more clearly 
to keep ourselves more balanced so that we can see more of actually what's going on so that we can make better choices. And I thought that was a really, really interesting kind of idea. And I don't know if you've kind of come up against anything analogous to that in your in your work with trying to make people see the world more clearly. I mean, usually, I guess we do this, we have an appeal to evidence on this one, right? We're like, okay, you're not seeing the world clearly. You think the ketogenic diet is the greatest thing in the world. So here's a bunch of evidence which says people in authority have studied this. Not you, not me, but people in authority. And we can all agree that they have more authority because they've studied it for years. Um, and they say it's probably not a good idea. So here's why you shouldn't do it. And yet, do people act on that, even though it's there? Rarely, well, I find. Yeah, I, even, I used to be in that game. Yeah. Right, when I was writing books with people and looking at hundreds of studies and seeing a preponderance of evidence, hmm. I've moved away from that um, because like... Just from an effectiveness point of view, you realize well, it wasn't it's, working? Well, it's just stopped being interesting and I was getting into lots of fights with people hmm. and getting and getting annoyed all the time. Sure. So, I mean, I'm, I'm much more interested in behavior and behavioral science. So I feel, you know, I feel like we know enough basically to know to point people in good directions mm. and what i'm interested in now is the, how people ignore the evidence of their own lives and their own bodies mm -hmm. so like we're, right now wellstart is trying to put together a clinical trial mm. and we've been trying for about a year and we've hit roadblock after stumbling block after problem after mm. issue and it's really hard to do a study mm. and we're only you know it's, we're looking for like 200 people yeah but you know how easy it is to do a study on the one body that you do have control and agency over, mm -hmm. like, you know, try eating differently for a week yeah. or, or notice your energy levels. Um, so, you know, that people don't even t avail themselves of the body that is theirs to study without the need of a uh, institutional review board. Mm. And the other thing is one of the, the cornerstones of our program is be a scientist of yourself. Like mm. if you screwed up, if you binged, if you stayed in bed for two weeks and didn't get up and do your morning walk, yeah. notice what was going on. Assess yeah. yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and, and most people will either beat themselves up, so become extremely emotionally uh, attached to whatever outcome they're getting and not see clearly at all, just, mm. just as if they've been, they've been pushed down while falling. Mm. Or they'll simply be cavalier and say, oh, well, I'll try better next week without gleaning anything from the experience. So they don't analyze why. They're just like, meh, reset button. I'll try and get. I'll, I'll try again next week. But there's a little voice inside them that says, oh, well, I tried and failed last week, so I'll probably be the sort of person that will try and fail again or something like that, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know, people, people think about being kind to themselves in mm -hmm. very strange ways. Mm -hmm. right? So me being kind to myself is, well, I'm not going to beat myself up over this. Hmm. And we're like, well, no one's asking you to, but how would you like to learn from it so you don't beat yourself up next week with a crappy yeah. decision? Mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, um, so what have you found to be the biggest impediments to people seeing, seeing their habits clearly, right, or, or continuing to make good choices? I, I know that's a big question, um, but what do you see as the things that really stand in the way? What are the biggest sets of blinkers that you've seen mm. that get in the way of people's kind of seeing the truth in front of them? How do they delude themselves reliably? That's such an interesting question. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, the, the thing that comes to mind most is people have an assumption about what would happen if they didn't uh, impose guilt and shame upon themselves. Okay. Like, Can you like, give an example? Well, like they've always, like you've, you've always, um, you know, beat yourself up mentally after you eat something you shouldn't. Mm. 
And so now you've cre- you create all these rules and you follow diets hmm. and you take on external authority. Hmm. And every time you screw up, you, you, you punish yourself by going for a five mile run or by fasting the next day. Hmm. And you have this assumption that if I don't do that, then all hell will break loose. Like I'll, I'll turn into a total slob. So you kind of use it like an OCD control measure almost or something, but like it's, it's, it's trying to get, yeah. take, trying to wrest control back of, from the world in some way that like you have to apply some sort of measure of control after you yeah, well, prove to yourself that you can't do it. Well, yeah, whether it's control or if I don't beat myself, like just like think of our criminal justice system or think of, think I'd of, rather think, not at the moment, but yeah. <laughs> think of the way we think of how human beings, uh, how to get human beings to act the right way. We feel, or or parenting, like there's a, this is a control culture. Hmm. So if if some external authority, whether it's a person or an institution or a set of rules that you've interjected, isn't applied, that you can't be trusted, and I can't be trusted. Hmm. And so if we stop beating ourselves up, if we say, you know, the the body, you just said earlier, the body knows how to fall. Hmm. Right, the body knows how to do lots of things. The body knows how to find good food. The hmm. body knows how to. Uh, how to love other bodies. The body knows all these things. Mm. And we think that our minds have to constantly get in the way. And we're terrified of, of letting the mind take a, take a, a passenger seat mm. to the body. Do, do you think that comes, just to play devil's advocate on that one though, right? Um, we know our bodies know how to love other people. And yet as teenagers, we don't typically work out too well with that on the first attempt. Right? Right. So maybe we don't know that well how to do it. And uh, and again, our bodies know how to find food, but I, our bodies often don't give a crap. They'll find the first bit of food they can see and the super stimulus of a very sugary food. The, the long-term effects just won't be viewed in the same way because our brains are, are, you know, your limbic system is like you might starve at some point. So you need to mainline the sugar just in case, sure. like like crashing on it because you might never know when you, we're going to starve again, right? So it's, it's, it's not, maybe they knew how to do these things in a time when they, when they developed, but there's a certain mismatch that's happening right now. And, and that reluctance to give over or trust our natural instincts comes from a genuine fear that sometimes our natural instincts are terrible, right? They're not always good. Sometimes they lead us horribly astray, right? Right. Well, our natural Mm. instincts are um, probabilistic, Mm. right? So that probability-wise, if you came across calories and you ate them, you'd be more likely to pass on your genes than mm. someone who said, no, I think I've had enough. I'll, yeah. I'll, um, but, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. We're living in a mismatched environment. But that, so, that's true. That's an interesting example, though, because now surely that fl- that switch has flipped, right? And now probably people who know how to say, yeah, I think I've had enough uh, in a world where hunger is a vanishingly small thing, right? Genuine famine is a very, very small thing in today's world now, right? Even if you're living in some war-torn part of Africa, right? You might not, you might still be uh, way below the poverty line. You might still be hungry often, but very, very few people actively die of, die of starvation now with like, uh, you know, relief aid and all those kinds of things, right? So, and actually more people die of overeating, especially in the developed world than they do of ever of under-eating, right? Um, maybe poor food right. quality and malnutrition might pay into it as well but probably if you look at the big things that kill people shouldn't uh, now at this point people who know when to say that's enough food or i don't want that sugar probably going to outlast uh, uh, probably going to outlast people who don't right yeah well you you're you have to talk, teach me about you know are there still evolutionary pressures on human beings mm. right or you know or at least in these in these not while the healthcare systems keeping people alive with diabetes no probably not a, a lot of the time but yeah that's true that's absolutely true yeah it's like we're we're correcting for that right people who um, might have had a lot more trouble in the past. We're we're helping them to maintain behaviours that aren't uh, 
aren't healthy and are not going to wouldn't enable them to live past the age of like 55 or 60 had we not intervened in these ways right, right. i think evolution that doesn't really um you know select for like happiness and fulfillment no it definitely right. doesn't no no it doesn't give a crap about those things yeah that's right, right. yeah so in, in a sense part part of the project is to defeat our genetic uh mm. predispositions through sure. through um you know, through, through as you said, the, you know, the, the mind and the will over mm. the the body, right? Um, but there's, you know, there's what we still don't, what we still don't um, understand is what what would happen. So if we, if we impose, let's say, an environment on ourselves, yeah, whether it's you know, it's like okay, I I only eat these things, I only eat the things that would have been available to my ancestors, mm. more or less. Within within that, once I've made that decision. Mm. Do I need to beat myself up if I stray, mm. or can I try? Like once I've gotten clean, mm. like have you ever smoked a cigarette? I haven't actually. No. Yeah. no. I, imagine yourself smoking your first cigarette now. Like mm. it, you, you would cough, yeah. you would choke, you would wheeze, mm. you, you know. But imagine someone who's a two pack a day smoker smoking a cigarette. Yeah, they would look a lot healthier than you. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I'm happier about it, probably. Yeah. 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 So so once we clean ourselves up. Mm. We still don't trust that, okay, if I have that piece of chocolate cake, mm -hmm. then I can just pay attention to the natural consequences of it. I'll be sluggish the next day. I'll be in a brain fog. Mm -hmm. I may gain a few pounds. I might feel it if on my morning run. Mm -hmm. right? like we, once we, we don't trust that there are natural consequences that would simply move us away from, um, from bad behaviors and habits the same way that we would pull our hand away from a hot stove. Emmanuel Manolakakis will be coming to Durham, North Carolina on the weekend of January the 26th, 27th, 2019 for a two-day exploration of deep Systema principles. To register online, visit www.ncsystema.com slash events. Before September the 1st, podcast listeners can claim an additional 10% off using the discount code HITME at checkout. That's H-I-T-M-E at the online checkout. Hope to see you there. So you feel like um, part of the solution to this riddle of agency, right, is, is to get out of the way and trust more of our natural instincts because they probably will, on balance, help us out. If if they are, if we if we do the willpower work to clean ourselves up first. Mm. So you know, we go, Mia and I go walking every morning on our street, and we pick up garbage. Mm. So we can spot garbage from you know a quarter mile away oh look mm. there's a budweiser can mm. right there's a marlboro packet mm. but if but there's places where you could walk where there's so much garbage yeah. you you wouldn't even notice it you wouldn't notice an individual piece mm. uh so i think you know like, like the problem with intuitive eating which mm. a lot of people like to talk about is that you know intuitively we like sugar and cigarettes sure. and cocaine yeah. <laughs> but, but like once you get to a healthy place yeah. and that's where a lot of people have the, the trouble they get to this place they've been on the diet they've done the thing mm. and now they're terrified of backsliding mm. because they don't trust that their bodies are going to tell them this was uh this is a a wrong move which mm. you know now so now i'm thinking about Sistema training sure. about all the ways in which I can get immediate feedback. Yeah, th that becomes very trustworthy. Yeah, and and wrong moves literally become wrong moves in Sistema training, right? And so, so yeah, so pulling it back to kind of the the context in which we train, right? Um, 
the problems that you see in training aren't that people you know stop to take an unhealthy snack most of the time although they, they might do that during a seminar right? um the problem usually becomes like behaviors that come out when people feel threatened right um so the the like the maladaptive behaviors and the, the things that stop us having true choice in a sense usually come from one of two things right they come from fear or they come from aggression and usually aggression is like an outgrowth of the fear whatever it was right and we've talked about this at length and other things but essentially all that, all other things being equal right um the amygdala processes fear or um flicks the switch between whether or not we we start feeling afraid or whether we don't right it interprets the beginning of of a threat and then initiates the threat response in a, in, a, in a sense um and that can also initiate anger as well that's the that's the root of um the of irritation of anger of rage all of those kinds of things all of which can come out when we're in we're, we're under a physical threat and we're working with somebody in systema um or in real life and but then you have this counterplay of the frontal cortex, which does the inhibiting, which sort of says, okay, you have that anger, you have that aggression, you're afraid, but are you going to act on it, right? So that's the bit that should be holding us in check. And it's the balance between these two things a lot of the time, which determines whether or not we're actually going to act on it. So you can feel aggressive, but not act on it, right? You can feel afraid, but not act on it, right? Um, if you're pushed into enough fear, then you probably will act on it because the frontal cortex gets partly deactivated, right? We redirect signals away from it and then you're basically functioning like a, um, you know, a high functioning lizard, right? Like, ah, just very, very angry or very, very terrified and, and you'll act based on that. But most of the time there's a little bit of a calculation going on, right? The, the switch gets flipped and there's a lot going on in the limbic system. You're driven largely by fear and anger, but there's a little bit of frontal cortex coming in there, which is sort of saying, yeah, but what are the consequences? For example, I might be angry if somebody has shamed me in public or somebody starts pushing me around in a, in a bar or something like that and you feel angry enough at the touch and the and the threat on status and and what that might make you look like in a group that you might feel like punching a guy in the face but then you notice that he's six foot four he's wearing a tap out jersey and he has 12 friends behind him right and then so there's a little calculation that goes on and it's not because you're necessarily afraid of those people you're just like there are consequences here and maybe like expressing my anger might not work now if you get angry enough that can get overruled and you can be like screw the consequences i'm just going to punch this guy in the face and that can get you into terrible danger right so um excesses of these things remove choices a lot of the time right um so i guess the the corollary with trusting instincts or not trusting instincts it gets quite interesting because um as martin was talking about the weekend a lot of the time we talk about in systema about the concept of developing natural movement right that we we should stop trying to use too many acquired movement patterns and techniques and trying to step a certain way or dodge or arm lock or punch a certain way in a lot of senses and this is the over over kind of reaching message anyway a lot of the time right um, and try instead to trust our natural instincts our bodies know how to fall they know how to protect themselves they know how to evade um but at the same time some of those instincts are terrible right and so what Martin talks about a lot of the time is guided instincts, right? And we talked about it in his last podcast that what you're developing is not natural movement because natural movement might be horribly inadequate, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever your natural tendency is under pressure might be um, flinch and run away. It might be crash into them with aggression. And neither of those things is going to be great for you. So you have to acknowledge your instincts and then guide them. And I think this is a, a fascinating kind of 
thing to start thinking about because once you start thinking, all right, if that's the goal, it's to acknowledge that we ha we have some instincts, some are going to be helpful, some aren't, but we still need a little bit of steering. How can that apply in other areas of our lives? And whether it's healthy eating, whether it's um, deciding to get you know enough sleep every night, whether it's um, expressing more agency over how you spend your time, like how much time do you spend scrolling Facebook and Instagram versus doing work and then beating yourself up about that at the end of the day, right? All of these things to me come into the same place, which is that we feel like we get hijacked at some point and that we lose agency and, and that we're being controlled by something or someone else, whether it's um, you know, delicious artificial foods made by, you know, big sugar companies or whether it's, you know, eye addicting scrolling bars and notifications created by Facebook or Google or whatever it's going to be. Right. Um, or whether it's somebody controlling you with their, their force of dominance or their, or the threat display that they're putting on. Right. At the end of the day, what we're trying to work on is, is seeing that in context, seeing it for what it is, acknowledging that we're going to have an instinct there and then seeing if we can kind of steer that. So it's not about suppressing even the instinct. It's about steering. And I find that a much more interesting concept than we should just exert free will and expect to outperform our instincts because I don't think we can in the long term. I think we can do that on a day-to-day -day basis, but I think we fall off the wagon very quickly if we're relying on free will to override these influences. I don't think we can do it in the long term. Yeah, well, one of the things that um, is interesting is that we can feel the instinct, hmm. right? So I can feel the urge to reach for food that I don't want to have. So okay. I, you know, I spent the last few days at a conference, hmm. and conference food hmm. is typically, you know, stay awake food because conferences are terribly boring. Even vegan ones? This wasn't vegan. This was oh, the, okay. the Self-Insurance Institute of America conference. Oh, okay. So we're talking so, Cinnabons. And <laughs> so, so, like, half of, half of your listeners just fell asleep as I said those words. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, like, I'm hungry, I miss breakfast, and, oh, like, I'll cross, you know, I can sense myself wanting to cross the line, mm. and I, it feels different. Like, oh, here's some fruit, mm. and, oh, there is a muffin. Okay. And I don't want to eat the muffin, because God knows what's in the muffin. Okay. And I know that if I eat the muffin, I'm going to feel bad, and I'm going to have four of them. And, mm. and so it's a, it's a different, the instinct is an alert. Mm. So it's a kind of a... Um, a warning. Like an early so, warning system? Like, yeah, like, okay, something's going on here. Yeah. And at that point, I think what's really useful is a kind of humility about what we know and what we, what we don't know. So, okay. so there's, a, there's a concept in behavioral economics of the base rate, mm -hmm. right? So if you, if, you, you know, whatever, if you do something over and over and over again and you pay attention to the consequences, you'll have a, you know, a sense of the base rate. Like, what are the chances that this is going to work or not? Yeah. But very often we have our instincts are based on inaccurate base rates, the wrong base rate, or simply not enough data. Can you give an example of that? Concrete. Um, well, let's let's say um, you know sh Hurricane Florence is coming. Mm. Um, should I board up my house or not? Yeah. Should I should I go out and spend seven hundred dollars in plywood mm. at the at the the home improvement store? And so the base rate, might, you know, you'd look at well, how many hurricanes have we had? Mm -hmm. um, have there been any this bad here? And the answer is yes. There was Fran in 1996 that, mm -hmm. uh, that did you know, significant damage to buildings mm -hmm. in, in the area where we live. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, there was one, uh, I think, uh, Hazel or something in 1954 that was sure. even worse. That was terrible. Yes, right. mm -hmm. So, yeah, there is, you know, so, so then at that point you can say, well. Um, there's a precedent for this. There's precedence. Mm -hmm. Uh, the climate is getting uh, more unstable and out of control, so I would expect that, the, that it would increase or uh, intensify. Now, at that point, I can make a decision. Is, is the $700 an, 
and the amount of effort I would have to put in to, to put this up, take it down, store it, mm. is it worth what I think is a very low probability event mm. that may still happen? And at that mm. point, I feel like I'm working, I, can, I could say yes or no. Mm. I could, you could argue yes or no, but at least I'm working off a base rate. Mm. But the base rate that most people base it on is how many times has a hurricane hit my house? Hmm. And so there's some really interesting um, behavioral economics out of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, sure. about interviewing people who didn't listen to hurricane warnings or tornado warnings. Sure. And, and they did fine. So they do it again and again. And, and, so, <laughs> and so what they hear is like, home is where I'm safe. Yeah. My home has never been destroyed by a tornado. The next yeah. town over is much, more, is much less lucky than I am. <laughs> and they're, they're, like, they're interviewing like the um, meteorologists who live in Norman, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. At the uh, mm-hmm. at this weather center, like there's hundreds of them, and these are professionals who yeah. are still applying the base rate of how many times has this happened to my house, mm. as yeah. opposed to they know that tornadoes are are controlled atmospherically by high by high level winds and not by the hill or yeah. the Indian burial ground or or the river or whatever sure. they're telling themselves. Yeah. So there's an example of you know applying an incorrect base rate, mm. um, just. Because it it, uh, it has emotional salience. So um, so does then that kind of it's almost like that gives rise to kind of almost superstitious behavior, right? It's just like, well, I was safe last time. Knock on wood. If I put on these gym socks and stay in my house, I'll probably be fine if another hurricane came through because that's what happened the last three times, right? That kind of. So it, it's not based on any kind of. Um, it's not based on again. It's not based on reality. It's a story that they're telling themselves again about the whole environment, right? Like, right. Or to give you know, an example in the medical field, mm. uh, most. Um, public level screenings, health screenings, hmm. are a bad idea, just statistically. Okay. But nobody. Feels, so let's say, let's say, like, like the, prostate cancer and prostate breast cancer, cancer and so, breast yeah. cancer. Sure. Um, they rarely improve survivability, right? So basically, they just let you know sooner that you're going to die, and then you worry about it and other stuff like that. And right. Like, well, by the time or, they catch something, it's probably so big, you know, there's right. not much you can do about it. Or, like or mm-hmm. you know, for every uh, for every you know the, the problem of false positives, and so mm-hmm. people getting treatments that actually may make things worse, or the biopsies that sure. may actually introduce cancers. Yeah. Uh, so that you know, the, if you look at the numbers, mm-hmm. they're very very clear but any individual mm. who goes in for a screening comes out with a better view with, with a more positive view of screening than they had before regardless of the outcome really? so, so mm. you go for your screen you go for your prostate exam mm. and they tell you you're clear mm. mr murphy no problem yeah oh, like, thank, thank god, god. For I, oh, I feel i feel so good yeah then you go in and they say oh we have a problem you have a, you have an elevated psa let's mm. we're going to do a biopsy um, and we're going to have to keep watching this. Oh, thank God they caught it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. So either way, mm. you're happy mm. and, and you're not looking at the base rate of, you know, the, the, the incontinence and uh, impotence rates of people who have, who have had um, any sure. of the prostate procedures. Most men who die of prostate cancer die with it, not from it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But, mm. but when you do your screening, you're, you're, only, you're either going to get relief mm. um, or gratitude that they help. And, and then if you survive, you're like, oh, thank God for, mm. they, they, you know, now I'm going to go and be, you know, the celebrities are like, everyone needs to get screened. Sure. Like how many, yeah. how many male actors and, sure. But, yeah. You know, like get to get your screening because it saved my life. Yeah, <laughs> did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So, so bringing it back again to within the realm of um, of quick decisions, right? Because some of those things, like should I act on my prostate cancer screening 
result or should I prepare for Hurricane Florence or not? Does, does it make a difference with the amount of time that you had to weigh and calculate that, that decision? So, so for Florence, for example, you put in a telephone call to me and you're like, I'm weighing out whether or not to go to the seminar. Maybe talk me out of it here. I feel like I, I don't know whether to go or not. And so there was yeah. definitely some push and pull. You weren't acting on pure instinct, right? There was a lot of kind of, that you, you apparently had an instinct to stay. I, I would say in that instance, you had an instinct to stay because you're like, I'm not sure what will happen. If it's bad, however low probability, I want to be here with my family. But you also had like a, uh, like a mind which was saying, eh, it'll probably be fine. I'm looking at the results. I'm looking at the weather reports. It will probably go south of us. Probably won't affect us too much this far in land. So you were trying to make a, a calculated decision. Now, if, for example, you didn't have any warning, and this happens sometimes, right? There's just a thunderstorm that's kicking around and there's a tornado touchdown right near your house, right? Now you hear like the roaring of a freight train. There's cows flying by the window. I don't know. There could be here, chickens yeah. at least, right? Stuff like that, right? Um, and now you have to make a choice, like which is the safest room in the house? Where should I go? Should we get out of the house? Should we get in the car and drive away? Should I try and go to like a big armored room within the house or the, the, sit in the bath? What's it going to be? Now you have to make a decision based on not on calculation but on like has this happened before and if it has and maybe you jumped in the bathtub last time and your house got de got demolished then you would go immediately and throw your kids in the bathtub and you would get there yourself but right. if you're like me and you, you're from a place that very very rarely gets tornadoes now i'm drawing from every tornado movie i've ever seen everything i've ever read about tornadoes and, and i'm probably like what's the structurally most sound place in the house and i'm basically trying to bundle my kids towards there still second guessing myself worrying about it and all that kind of stuff and i'm frantically trying to stay in contact with you know the the alert system and all that kind of thing but it, I, is it a different thing when the decision is made in the moment and even in the instances of food choices, right? We might make a long-term decision to eat healthier and this is my long-term eating plan. Here's, this is what I eat now. Yeah. But does that change in the moment? Like when you're under stress and you're offered a buffet of crap, are you using the same yeah. processes to, to control yourself when that happens as you are when you look in the long term? I don't, I'm not sure we do. Yeah. We are. Well, I think that's the goal mm. is to practice so okay. just like in Sistema, we don't start by beating the hell out of each other, right? Mm -hmm. We start no, by... Sometimes we do. No. <laughs> <laughs> we start with, uh, yeah. with breathing, with movement, mm -hmm. with rolling around on the floor, with push drills. Sure. And I think it's the same thing with, okay, so here's how I eat. Mm -hmm. And I know this buffet is going to like try to mug me. Yeah. Like, you know, so, so life, you know, this is this, this, this book that I think uh, we, both, we both read, the uh, um, Organized Tomorrow Today. Sure. Yeah. Right? And they had the, the idea of the fight through. Sure. Mm. And so, you know, so like some, we know that there's things out there that are going to tempt us mm. and it's our job to get better and better at resisting those temptations, to go seek them out, to practice, mm. to, to fail and to succeed, but to sort of stumble our way to success. So I think it's a little bit different than, mm. um, in the moment, here's the tornado, mm. but what I think is, 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 can be similar is, okay, so you live in an area that may have tornadoes. Mm. So it's a responsible thing to do to take 10 minutes to find out what's the protocol. Yeah. So I don't have to figure it out in the moment. The exactly. protocol yeah. is get in the bathtub with a mattress over yourself. Sure. Mm -hmm. So now I know mm. like, I don't have to, I don't have to think about it because I've rehearsed it in my mind. Sure. And yeah. ideally, you know, if you're, if you want to be really responsible, you rehearse it with your family a few times. Sure. Yeah. You, you know, Prepper mentality. You can go full on Wes Anderson with that one. <laughs> Drill your family every day. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, as a kid, we always had fire drills three, four times a sure. year at school. Yeah. Um, and now they have active shooter drills in primary schools, which is kind of sad, but there you go. It's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, so to practice, whatever it is you want to practice, if you know that the environment may uh, conflict with that desire, then practice in increasingly difficult environments. Right. So, so what are the tendencies that we're working against in Sistema, just to kind of um, 
bring it back and towards the end here towards um, the, the concrete kind of takeaways that we have in in my view usually the things that you're working against are fear um, and aggression and and to a certain extent shame and pity right as well those things come in as well so it's very easy to see how fear can influence our movement and our decisions in Sistema um, we can go in with the idea that we're going to explore angles we're going to um, explore ways of um, taking somebody's structure of altering their biomechanics so that we can bring them to the ground and neutralize a conflict or control them or, or you know injure them if need be whatever's going to happen but if we feel a sudden burst of fear um, for example we get punched in the nose and the eyes are running and everything just kind of there's a stinging pain and you just feel like that that wasn't something i planned for at all right it can completely disrupt any any state um, that you thought you were going to hold um, in trying to work with somebody in a, in a complex or subtle way right this way um, and if somebody attacks you hard and fast enough and you feel like you can't control the situation you can go from attempting to do the drill and attempting to explore your reactions to things to just trying to survive right you you just start flinching you start bringing your uh, arms up or out in order to try and push somebody away in ways that aren't helpful and that offer people targets and things to grapple stuff like that right um but the fear obviously can influence our ability to learn and to perform in the moment that's an obvious one right um, another one is aggression right um, we can be doing the drill quite nicely we agreed to do a drill with a person in order to learn things but let's say the drillers just punch each other in the face and you have to learn how to relax your neck in order to roll off of these things and you just headhunt for like 10 minutes trying to figure that out after a while maybe you catch a couple and sometimes slaps to the face are even worse than punches right they can just get you in that kind of Ugh, like somebody's thrown down the gauntlet there's just something very galling in a status way about a slap to the face that it's not even the same from a punch in the face right um and then all of a sudden we find ourselves kind of flexing and puffing up and trying to make ourselves look bigger and the back gets tense and the shoulders get tense the neck gets tense and, and the quality of our movement is completely diminished from that point onwards and the aggression has kind of done that now we didn't mean to do that and given a choice we wouldn't go back and do it twice but Sometimes we do it again and again and again. We exhibit these fear patterns, we exhibit these aggression patterns. Um, and then sometimes we work with people and we can't bring ourselves to hit them. We, we feel sorry for them too much. We mm. try and um, we look at them and we empathize with how much pain they might be feeling. And then we can't bring ourselves to apply a strike or do something else because they seem to be having difficulty. When sometimes the best thing to do is not feel sorry for them, but to actually have compassion for who they are and what's going on to help them out a little bit, but still to hit them, to help them to get over that and apply some adversity. So there's a lot of kind of factors that come in here that stop us from where we start telling ourselves stories in training that remove our choices, our potential choices. So how can we use what we've learned about the fact that we get influenced to get around that, right? Well, I think the, key, the, the main thing is awareness. Mm. That once I'm aware that I'm afraid or I'm aggressive or yep. I feel sorry for someone, yep. then I can keep doing what I'm doing. Mm. Or, I, or I can say, you know, I, like in training, like I need a break right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, or can you help me? Well, I need to stop and do some push-ups. Just get rid of this aggression. Get the, get the tension out of my shoulders and my chest or something so I can reset and, and go back to doing something useful. Yeah. So it's mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the awareness is what gives us the, uh, the opportunity to change. So if you said, if, you know, going back to those uh, prison experiments or the coin mm. slot, because, because we're unaware of it, mm. it influences us um, in ways that we can't overcome. Yeah. That we can only begin to overcome it. Mm. Um, so whether it's, you know, putting my food on a smaller plate mm. or recognizing that at 3 p.m. after the, the, the daily meeting that pisses me off mm. that I need to go eat a donut. Mm. It's the recognition that allows me 
the opportunity to try other things, even though I may not be able to succeed every time. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I do the workshops on stress and resilience and now on like a technology as well, um, we have a three-step process of knowledge, awareness, and control. And I think a lot of the, the time people do is they try and jump from knowledge to control. They're like, oh, I read this thing, so now I should do something different. And they don't st- stop to look at where these things are influenced in their lives and how they should turn things around in order to do it. So, yeah, so I guess it comes back to the basics. And um, how you maintain awareness is that you maintain breathing so that you can feel your internal environment, so you can feel what's changing inside your body. You maintain your structure, because as soon as your structure is compromised, you feel threatened or you feel aggressive, right? If your body shape changes, then your emotions change along with it. Um, and movement as well is another aspect of that. If we're on the move, then we feel like we have options. If we get our feet stuck to the ground, we feel static, we feel locked, we feel trapped. And then that will kind of barrel up this whole story of fear or aggression that comes up in the body and stop us from making good decisions or stop us making appropriate decisions instead. So once again, it comes full circle and we're back to the, the basics of the systema, right? <laughs> Keeping those things in as we, as we go. So yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right, well, that's all I got. Yeah, bro. Well, thanks very much, Howie. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com.